Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Glad to have you here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to get right to our panel because, and I know this has become something of a redundancy, guess what? We have a lot to talk about in political news on the show today. So without further ado, uh, let me bring in uh, Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Kevin, as we introduce you, we should say um, you're coming to us from Austin, Texas today because you're at a, a pretty important event uh, that uh, we, we ought to just say a couple words about. Yeah, that's true, Bill. I'm at the Texas Tribune Festival, which is, uh, you know, one of the big events in uh, American journalism put on by a uh, leading news organization here in Texas. Uh, and they get quite the uh, stable of speakers. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg will open this festival and Liz Cheney will close it. And in between, I've got a couple personal highlights. One is uh, one of the speakers is former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who we covered during my time there. And our own Greg Bluestein is also going to be here uh, on a panel. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think one of the reasons that also I mention it is the Texas Tribune, in many ways, is a publication that sort of says a lot about what the future of print journalism could be. The Texas Tribune is a digital news publication. It did not start as a dead tree newspaper. And of course, many people believe that the industry, Kevin, is moving towards digital rather than uh, uh, print uh, if it's going to succeed. So that's another reason it's an important event. Right. The future of um, certainly news organizations uh, like the one I work for is digital, and we are moving we're moving in that direction. The other thing I would note about the Texas Tribune is it is supported entirely by philanthropists who care about political coverage in Texas being neutral and being supported and providing the information that citizens need. And I think you could make a very strong case for the same sort of feelings in Georgia. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk to one of our guests about that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mike Thurman. Now, Michael Thurman is uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO. Michael, did you want to jump in before I introduce you? Are you that eager? No, no. Just smiling at my friend Kevin. <laughs> well, that is the voice of Michael Thurman. You know, he's the CEO of DeKalb County. And Michael, we're always glad to have you on Political Rewind. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Bill. Delighted to be here and delighted to be a part of this wonderful panel that you've assembled today. It it is a good panel. Riley Bunch is part of it. Uh, She, of course, is the public policy reporter at GPB uh, News. How are you doing, Riley? Doing good. I actually just got back from Austin this weekend, but I missed the memo to stay for the fancy conference that Kevin's at. (laughs) You will someday, I'm sure, uh, get a chance to be at the uh, Texas Tribune event. Uh, We're welcoming back to the show after a long absence, Jordan Fuchs, who is a Republican political consultant in her current 
uh, position, but uh, also was the deputy secretary of state until uh, quite recently, which means, Jordan, I think it's fair to say that living through the 2020 election and after the aftermath in that position was at times a wild ride, if nothing else. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I think that's a short and sweet answer of it. And at the end of the day, we all ended up thriving and got through the primary. And um, I do, do any of us want to relive the 2020 election? I assure you, none of us are, are paid enough to do that. But uh, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of four years. Well, we're really glad that you are now back in a position where we can have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Um, Michael Thurman, I'd really kind of like to start with you. Because through the week, of course, we've been looking at this uh, deluge, it feels like, of polling that has come out about uh, Georgia political races. And we'll do that some more today. Um, and of course, the number one poll we've been looking at is the AJC poll. But I, I'd kind of like to start in a different direction just for the day here. I'd like to talk about an event that you presided over at Stone Mountain Park this week. Um in which you rededicated a covered wooden bridge that had been moved from its place in Oconee County uh, to the edge of Stone Mountain Park. And the history of the bridge has come to light, and it led you and others to decide to rededicate it and use it as a symbol of the changes you'd like to see happen to that park. I, I know that's somewhat obscure introduction, but I'd like you to fill in the details. Well, thank you, Bill. Yeah, it was known as the College Avenue Bridge. There in Athens, actually, expanded the uh, Oconee River, a bridge that I traversed oh. throughout my youth with my father, uh, who was the vegetable route man in Athens, Georgia, and I always said I was the scariest ride you can ever imagine across that old bridge that led to Newtown. And uh, first, though, I, I want to thank Bill Stevens, who was the one who continued to advocate and support it. You remember several years ago, Governor Nathan Deal appointed me to the Stone Mountain Memorial Association. And that was a connection there with myself, with the bridge, and discovering that it was actually built by a black man who was the son of a freed slave named Horace King. But in that, and by the way, it's been great reporting, Calvin, uh, by Tyler Estrup, and as well as the retired chief, Jim Galloway. What the bridge symbolized to me from the inception is that we need to build bridges. Uh, one of the great challenges we are having in our state and in our nation is what appears to be a growing divide between race and class and political affiliation. So the bridge is symbolic to me, but more importantly, it's the opportunity for a Stone Mountain Park that was built, built on the twin foundations of racism and bigotry to recast itself as a place where people of all races, colors, creeds, political affiliations should be able to come and to engage one another. That's what Kevin said about that's what we need. We need to be able to talk. It's specifically about our history, our shared history, our painful history. And I believe that because of the support, this moment is a pivotal moment, not just for Stone Mountain, it could also be for the state of Georgia. Um, one of the comments that you made during your talk 
is uh, was reported by Jim Galloway, who wrote a freelance now essay for the AJC about it. You said it's symbolic of the fact, quote, that the people of Georgia will own this park. And this park will exist and be maintained not for one, not for two, not for three, not for you, not for thee, not for you, but for all of us. All of our histories will be celebrated, will be protected. And Riley, of course, we know that that park for so long, as um, Michael has already mentioned, has been identified with the the Confederacy, uh, the notion of the lost cause, which we know is a myth. Um, And so this effort to try to rebrand it is more than just a practical kind of business decision. It says something about where the state is headed. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk all day about recognizing our history and learning from it and trying to move forward from it, but I think it really is kind of a reclaiming of what happened right at a local level. And I think it's important to pay attention to this when it happens. Um, I know there was a recent memorial put up at, at Tybee Island for the 1960 weigh-ins, um, and it, it is really on-the-ground efforts by local organizations that are leading this. We don't see a lot of kind of the renaming or rededicating at the state level. So it really is the people of Georgia taking back, right, their history and recognizing, trying to move forward from it. Um, Jordan, tell me how you look at today um, the uh, efforts that have been going on in this state to try. I know we have our political partisan divide. That's been harsh and uh, troubling to all of us. Um, But efforts like what Michael Thurmond is talking about now to bring us together across racial lines uh, strikes me as in some ways even more important than the partisan divide. Have we got you, Jordan? I am definitely on the Sorry, guys. (laughs) Hey, guys. I I think that's a fair assessment. And one of the things that I would like to point out is is Michael is is a state hero here and and the fact that he is honoring the history here is, is, is significant work and I'm thankful that he's doing it. Um, one of the things I would like to point out is that it, it is a part of our history. We do honor it, but the state of Georgia has come a long way. And we have here, we have record historic turnout of minority voters. We have record historic registration of minority voters. And no matter what the result of the U.S. Senate might be, is that at the end of the day, we're going to have an African-American representing us in in the state Senate, uh, not state Senate, U.S. Senate, excuse me. And I think that 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 is amazing and that's good for our state. Um, Kevin Riley, I think you know I have a sort of a special personal interest in in all of this. Uh, During my break from journalism, I spent seven years as the Southern director of the Anti-Defamation League. And, um, of course, it was uh, the Leo Frank case uh, in, in which a, a white businessman was lynched uh, for uh, 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 the accusation that he had murdered a, a young girl. He was Jewish, uh, and uh, so there were great prejudices against him. And it was a result of his lynching. Uh, that the Ku Klux Klan re-energized itself and started holding their rallies on the top of Stone Mountain uh, uh, to uh, essentially celebrate uh, the bigotry that the Frank trial exposed. Yeah, I mean, I I, I will just tell you, I mean, uh, I got to meet uh, 
Michael Thurman early on when I arrived in Georgia and uh, a lot of other wise people. And if you examine the history of Stone Mountain closely, it is a really great way to understand the uh, history of the South, history of Georgia, history of Atlanta, um, because of all of the forces at work that created that carving, that, that the reason the park came to be, all of those things. And you, you will visit with the most difficult issues that we face along racial lines, and you will visit with opportunities to uh, resolve and understand each other better uh, by understanding Stone Mountain. That's what I believe, and that's what I've learned in my time here. Michael, one other important point, and you can weigh in on, as you will on this, but I do want to add to this, that we are, this is the, today, uh, marks the 116th anniversary of uh, one of the uh, really um, most awful racist events in the city of Atlanta, and that was in 1906, uh, Atlanta, what we now call, I now call, race massacre, uh, because it was a day in which white citizens ran, ran through black neighborhoods, murdered 25 uh, black people uh, in Atlanta, uh, burned down buildings, burned down businesses and homes. Uh, and, and it's an event that uh, also tells us something about our past. And by calling it a massacre instead of a riot, it makes it more clear that this was a crime against black people, not a riot of black people. Well, the truth sets us free. Uh, I'll pivot back to Stone Mountain, then, of course, we'll talk about the uh, massacre. But I love Confederate history, I spent, uh, and I love uh, really Civil War history. I spent the greater part of my youth and adulthood studying the Civil War. The Civil War was a seminal moment in the history of our nation. Uh, it was a Civil War that redefined what it meant to be an American. It redefined uh, freedom. It's what Lincoln talked about at Gettysburg. So I have no issue whatsoever in celebrating and studying and reading and researching Civil War history. Uh, but we also have to distinguish Civil War history from a Confederate uh, lost cause mythology. But uh, what we have to do is continue to have the courage to have the courageous conversations. I've always believed that history brings people together, uh, whether it's the history of uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters, the history of the South, the history of blacks, white, Native Americans, we have to have the courage to engage, to discuss, and talk about critical issues. I celebrate uh, the movement to not so much recast it, but to create a more accurate narrative of the Atlanta uh, race massacre that occurred uh, here in, our, in 1906. So what that does, and look what happened, though. We had great local leadership. Uh, Ms. Ann Bond here, we had great leaders who just organically said, no, we need to re-examine this issue. Uh, we need to have the conversation and to create a narrative that is more accurate and complete for current and future generations. But what really impressed me was that along with that, Sheffield Hale, uh, the Georgia Historical Society, Todd Gross and others all agreed that collectively we need to revisit this very this horrible event we need to more accurately cast it and more importantly we need to study it so that we can learn from it so that we don't repeat it uh ernie Searles had a great article today in the ajc it was very balanced and focused and that is the way human beings evolve and grow 
uh, as we learn from our strengths as well as our weaknesses. All right. I, I appreciate uh, the starting the show today with a conversation about this effort to try to somehow bring greater understanding to who we are and who we, uh, many of us, most of us would like to become. But there's a lot of politics uh, to talk about today as well. I, what I'd love to do, though, is get a break out of the way early uh, and come back and we'll begin our discussion about the political headlines of today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Riley Bunch, uh, as I said at the very top of the show, we really have had a week in which we've seen a lot of polls drop about Georgia uh, races. Uh, Not surprising as we're getting closer and closer to Election Day. And of course, Georgia is one of the most important states in the country now that it has become a purple state. Um, So uh, let's talk a bit about what the polls are showing us and um, what we think they mean about the future of these races. Let me start with the governor's race. Um, All of the polls we've seen this week, CBS News, YouGov, the Atlanta Constitution, Quinnipiac, um, they all have pointed, um, Mammoth, Monmouth had a poll as well this week, they all have pointed to a lead by Brian Kemp over Stacey Abrams, but the leads that they've uh, found they vary wildly. Um, the uh, AJC poll has the lead at uh, about eight points. Um, uh, CBS YouGov has six points, but Quinnipiac only has two points. So what should listeners to this show make of what these polls really tell us about the direction of the race? The Quinnipiac poll puts uh, Abrams easily within the margin of error of Brian Kemp. Yeah, there's a lot going on, isn't there, right? And it's really hard to sift through it all. I I think that um, what we're seeing as a consensus across the polls is that Brian Kemp does have a slight lead, but it's just, it's tight, right? We're still seeing a very tight race. A lot can happen. And I know Kevin can talk about the weight of their polls, um, but it it is hard to sift through it all. Um, And there is still a lot of time before the election. So I I would just caution people, remind them that it is a snapshot in time when you're looking at these polls. Jordan, you do internal polling in your work as a consultant and you look at the public polls, uh, certainly this week. Um, Can you give us any sense of how your poll, I know you're polling for the candidates that you represent, But I'm curious if you, when you do your internal polls, are also looking at the big races, the governor and the Senate race, and how closely they map, if you do, what we're seeing in the polling by organizations like the AJC. Yeah, and I, and I want to I want to lead with I have a lot of respect for the AJC. I have a lot of respect for the the pollster that they're using, Dr. Trey Hood, and um, I. I I looked at the cross tabs, and any anybody who is looking at these polls, you just got to go right to the back and see how they're weighting them. They have 50, nearly 50% of the poll weighted for conservatives. I I think they 
either had an oversample or, or something happened. So if you are making a decision about your campaigns, you probably don't want to lead with this particular poll. I, I don't think any of the campaigns on the top end of the ticket are slowing down because of it. I do think that we have a slight advantage, but that advantage can be lost very quickly if you get comfortable. Michael, uh, weigh in on what you've seen this week in the polling. I agree with Jordan, and she's absolutely correct. You know, the poll can be accurate, but it's all based on a predictive model, i.e., who do we expect to turn out and in what percentage of voters within certain demographic groups and categories. So the poll can be accurate based on your model, but the one thing the poll really doesn't know as to who is actually going to turn out on Election Day or in Georgia, who will, which campaign will generate or be most successful in getting out the early vote. So the race is still uh, a toss-up in many ways. Uh, I remember uh, back in October, I guess it was 1998, I remember walking into my campaign headquarters and I was running for labor commissioner, and all my uh, workers had a newspaper where the polls said we were six points down. Uh, with less than 30 days to go. And I, what I said, I, and I said it, I won't use the words, I said, but polls don't vote. We have to go out and get our people to the polls. So if you change the, the, uh, the, uh, the universe of those predicted to vote, then you will change the outcome of the vote. Kevin, jump in. Well, one of the reasons we, of course, have to do polls is so that politicians and political consultants can argue about them. Um, uh, but that aside for a moment, uh, uh, I think it's always important to remember, as both uh, Jordan and Michael have pointed out, that um, polls have to make decisions about their predictive models. And uh, we have a lot of confidence in our, pol our pollster at the University of Georgia uh, as well. And that's why we're so open about that predictive model. And it's available to people so they can see it. There's snapshots in time. In the end, uh, we all know the debate about accuracy of polls. I think it's important for people to, to know a couple things about why we do polling. The first, of course, is it's original information generated by non-campaign, non-partisan sources, because the campaigns who do polling and when they talk about it or release their polling, they have an agenda. I mean, let's face reality. We have no such agenda. And then the second thing is, I think it's way more interesting for people to look at the issues underneath the horse race. So today we're reporting that abortion does not seem to be as big a deal as certainly the Democrats want it to be, but as many people thought it would be. And I think there's nothing more important than understanding what issues matter to the citizens of Georgia versus which issues politicians would like you to think matter to citizens of Georgia. And so to me, that's the value in polling. But of course, I mean, with all this polling going on, it, it gets confusing. All right. So thank you for that. I mean, I think we all agree that uh, the polls are uh, uh, of the governor's race and of the Senate race, for that matter, all have uh, somewhat different outcomes. But I think there's a consensus on this panel uh, that this race is much closer, perhaps, than the polling right now uh, may indicate, partly because of what Jordan said about whether there was an oversampling of uh, conservative uh, voters. Um, but I think Kevin made it a more important point, Riley. And that is looking at the issues that are driving the race. And you know, uh, Riley, 
that Democrats are counting on anger over the road decision to get voters out to the polls. The AJC poll suggests that is not terribly high on the list of motivating factors for voters. Yes, and this was really interesting to come out in this poll because it's a little bit different than what we had seen in earlier AJC polls where it was such a top issue. Close, Obviously, that was closer to the Supreme Court's decision and the implementation of Georgia's strict anti-abortion law. Um, but this is kind of bad news for Democrats, right? Because that is what they are banking on, Stacey Abrams in particular, Jen Jordan at the Attorney General's office, um, running for Attorney General. This is what they're banking on is mobilizing voters over this issue. But I think I think one important thing to point out is they still might have an argument that this will mobilize issue, mobilize voters because there what this poll doesn't capture is newly registered voters, first voters, college age voters who are coming to age to vote, right? That is what they are saying is going to push them ahead on this issue. And that is something that the poll doesn't capture. So while it is, you know, kind of bad news in terms of how low of a priority abortion is in these um polling results, there is still a portion of the electorate that they're seeking to create from this issue. Mike Thurma, what do you make of the uh, uh, lack of apparent uh, interest in abortion as an issue? Well, Riley made a great point, though, and and I want to extrapolate on what she's saying. Uh, Stacey Abrams' stock and trade is bringing new voters in, right? So we won't know really how this might impact the outcome until actually the election. A whole strategy is built on bringing new voters to the polls who don't typically show up and who, quite frankly, fly under the radar screen of pollers and polling. Uh, I'm not so certain that this is not going to be a motivator for certain segments of the population. It, and so in a race this close, you're dealing in the margins. And so what you have to do is knit together a coalition of voters who might be motivated by different things, but would vote for one candidate as opposed to the other. What you're also seeing is that Kemp has positioned himself, thanks largely to David Perdue, as a moderate in the eyes of some voters. Uh, in the AJC Today, top of the phone story, uh, talks about the fact that Kemp is doing, relatively speaking, uh, better with African-American voters than some other Republican candidate. And I think Kemp can owe that to David Perdue, who, Purdue became the radical conservative, which forced Kemp back to a, what appears to be a more moderate position in the race. Uh, Jordan, there was there's a, another uh, aspect of this that probably may, means more than anything else beyond you know whatever a poll shows, and that is the get out the vote effort. And we know that in this cycle, Republicans are hitting the ground in ways that has not happened in the past. Democrats have always been out in the field knocking on doors in a way that Republicans, at least in Georgia, have not uh, done. And this cycle, what we're seeing is that Republicans are fiercely uh, trying to compete in the get out the vote effort. How significant is that as we get toward Election Day? That's big, especially if you compare it to the 2020 election. I recently found out that the state party didn't do an absentee ballot chase program, which I would consider that a basic tactic for a campaign to use in the middle of a pandemic. And so it, it does appear that they're trying to uh, fix that problem. They are going to do uh, an absentee ballot chase program. They're, they're doing get out the vote. So I'm glad that they're doing that now. 
What for you? What what is the issue? Um, forget about the polls for a second. What what's the most important issue that Republicans in this state can run on today? Is it the 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 economy? Is it inflation? The very things that we've talked about for a long time. Is that the issue? I think the top issues, whether you're going door to door and talking to voters, talking to swing voters, or or talking to Republicans, everyone is talking about inflation. And then the secondary issue that you're probably going to see in a lot of these campaigns is the issue of crime, in particular in the metro Atlanta areas. Um, you know, you, you might have a handful of voters here or there that have a concern about abortion. The reality is, is that what's in their face day to day is high, high gas prices, high inflation, high, you know, nobody can afford a home right now. Those are the issues that folks are folks are paying attention to. Uh, Mike, uh, what about Democrat, the Democratic side? I think it's inflation. I think that's the issue that drive it's groceries. It's the thing you have to do every week or every other week to support yourself and your family. Uh, that is continuing to be a centerpiece issue, and it's driving high people. So I've never quite seen an issue like this that's so sticky, and it seems to be everywhere, and it's impacting everything you do. Uh, that is an issue. When Jordan talks about crime, I think on the Democratic side, we're more concerned about the easily availability of guns and devastating impact that's happening, uh, in particularly in inner city African-American communities. So it's not so much crime, but it's crime and guns. And how do we get guns out of the hands of gangsters and people who want to do ill uh, in our community? Uh, wait, but I want to follow up, if I may. If you think inflation is the top issue, that's an issue that accrues to the favor of Republican candidates, yes? Well, not necessarily. It's how Democrats respond to the issue. Uh, you have to have a response. I don't think the fact of blaming this on Joe Biden solves the issue. What citizens are looking for, number one, they want someone who cares about the fact that they are facing very difficult times trying to purchase groceries and food and other basic essentials. First, you have to care and then a solution. It's one thing to talk about what someone else is not doing, but if you don't demonstrate that you have any concern for me, then I'm not interested in voting for you. Uh, Kevin Riley, uh, I'm also interested, of course, in the Donald Trump uh, impact on uh, the uh, election. Uh, we know now that Trump is considering coming to Georgia. He apparently after the Herschel Walker Raphael Warnock uh, debate next month, uh, he has come to other states uninvited. He's just shown up, whether the Republican candidates he's rallying for have asked him to be there or not. That may happen here in Georgia, um, whether he's invited or not. Yesterday, Cody Hall who, of course, is uh, Governor Kemp's uh, uh, campaign uh, communications director. We asked Cody whether uh, Kemp would stand on a stage with Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, let's just say that Cody Hall suggested obliquely that that wouldn't likely happen. Uh, but, you know, if Trump shows up, I wonder if that's a motivating factor for Democrats in the other direction. Well, I think it could be. In fact, if uh, Trump uh, uh, commits to a date to be here, I think uh, Governor Kent may call up Michael Thurman and want to have dinner with him that night so that he's unavailable um, to uh, be at Trump rally. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're a Democrat, I mean, you would still love to run against Trump. 
And I think that that is what the fear for Republicans has to be. I mean, Brian Kemp has evaded the Trump problem now for years. He doesn't need that landing in his front yard uh, weeks before the election. Um, and Democrats would like nothing better than for that to be the case, especially with all the negative publicity uh, Trump's gotten just in really in the past few days. So, um, yeah, the, maybe the, the uh, Democrats will charter a plane and just invite Trump here. Please come, President Trump. Please come do a statewide <laughs> tour with Democrats are willing to underwrite it for you. Heck, I'll carry your bags for you. You don't need Burns Jones. I'll do it. I'll come. I'll come. And, I'll come and crowd surf for Donald Trump. How about that? He was just trying to do the state. How about that? I, I, Riley? I appreciate. I appreciate the commentary from Mike. But on on the flip side, I mean, if you look at the unfavorables of Joe Biden, they're extremely high in the state of Georgia. And so, yeah, we, the, I'm sure the Democrats would love to see. Donald Trump campaign here. I think we on the Republican side would love to see Biden come in and camp for campaign for you guys as well. So, you know, when you nationalize these races, um, I, you know, you're going to get that type of response. The reality is that the voters know the candidates that are currently running, and it's less about national politics and more about what's actually occurring on the ground. Riley, jump in. Well, Jordan touched on exactly what I was going to say. What might be helpful for one candidate might hurt another candidate of the same party, right? And we see that not only with Trump and the Republican Party, you know, he it might be a good thing for Herschel Walker if Trump showed up, right? This stump for him, but on Brian Kemp's end, you know, that would, that would not be good for Brian Kemp at all. But on the flip side, exactly as Jordan pointed out, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris coming to stump for Stacey Abrams, that might not help um, Senator Warnock in the long run. So it really is balancing whether or not these high profile um, politicians in that, like Jordan said, nationalize these races will help the entire slate in the long run versus just one candidate over the other. All right, let's do this. Why don't we get our final uh, break of the show out of the way right now, and we'll come back with much more on Political Rewind. Uh, Jordan, you are the the Republican on uh, the panel today, so I want to start with you on this. Um, we know that the uh, PAC, aligned with Mitch McConnell, has now canceled $10 million in ads for Blake Masters, who is the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. He's an extreme right-wing election-denying uh, candidate, and they've just they've dumped him. They no longer think he's a viable candidate. I, but I want to put that in the context of what's happening in Georgia. That same PAC, in, f in fact, has increased its spending on the Herschel Walker race. They've added another $3 million plus dollars uh, to his race. And uh, McConnell's hosting a fundraiser for uh, Walker in uh, Washington. I think it's tonight. W what is this sudden surge of belief in Herschel Walker's uh, uh, viability based on, uh, in your opinion, Jordan? Sure. And I, I think it's in part because of the polling that we're seeing locally. Um, there, there is a slight advantage for Republicans here. And, and you know, the national guys are weighing that into uh, their, their strategy. The other thing is, is that 
Warnock has done a very good job of spending a lot of money attacking this guy. And at the end of the day, he's still competitive with Herschel Walker. And so I think that the national consultants, the the PAC or whoever's running it over there are seeing that and they're saying, okay, we're coming in and helping. Kevin? So, Jordan, I, I, you know, there's some thought, and I've heard a little bit of discussion about this, that uh, Brian Kemp could really help uh, Herschel Walker. In other words, um, if you believe some of the polling that, that, that Kemp's in a much stronger position, I think our Greg Bluestein at one point described it as could, could Kemp drag Herschel across the finish line. Um, if you were advising either, would you say, hey, you guys need to get together, or do you think they're better off uh, separate? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the media likes to focus on the the divide in the Republican Party. I think I think it's pretty clear that we're more united than we ever have been. And sure, Kemp is going to run his own race. So is Brad Raffensperger. So is uh, you know Herschel Walker. They all have their own coalitions that they have built. But at the end of the day, the Republicans are united against the you know inflation that's going on the crime the, the issues that are happening locally uh, mike thurman i'd love for you to pick up on uh this uh what jordan said about the fact that the warnock campaign and the PACs associated with it have spent a ton of money we know they have on trying to uh undermine uh, uh walker's credibility and as she points out the polling suggests that it has had very little impact. In fact, he's gained ground. What do you make of that? Well, <laughs> never underestimate an opponent, period. I don't care who you are or what you're doing, whether it's politics or life. Uh, I think Warnock will ultimately succeed because he has a better ground game uh, he will demonstrate, particularly to independent voters, uh, that he is, in many ways, he is better qualified. Uh, I was looking at the AJC poll, and I was impressed by the number of independent and conservative voters that are actually supporting Warnock, which is why he re- remains competitive in the race. Now, he's done, a, I think, an excellent job of holding on to the base, but also... You're breaking up, Mike. We're having a hard time hearing. Uh, we've lost Mike Thurman. If we can reestablish his line, uh, that'd be great, Natalie. Riley, your take on on Walker seeming to be very competitive in this race. You know, I would say that over the past few weeks, we have seen um, his campaign change a little bit, right? They've added a lot of high-profile reinforcements and operatives onto the campaign. And his message on the campaign trail, as you're watching him, it's still, you know, kind of chaotic, right? But it has been streamlined a little bit more. And if now, and now is the time for the Herschel Walker campaign to step up too, because Senator Warnock is tied to DC. He had a whole month off and he was campaigning and now he can't do that, right? So I think um, it's not a surprise that we're seeing this from the Herschel Walker campaign and the national Republicans coming in to send him some more reinforcements. Um, you know what, uh, uh, Jordan, I think Riley makes a great point. Part of Walker's success may be based on just what she said. He's got a new team of consultants who have come in. They're a much higher level uh, group, and they have managed, I think, to uh, take off some of the rough edges that we saw 
that were so troubling earlier on in the race. So, uh, right, Jordan? Yeah, I, I, I know some of the, the guys over there, and they do really good work. And um, it's not surprising that they have remained competitive despite a lot of the attacks you're seeing right now. I think Warnock has made a mistake by leaning into some of the mental health issues that Walker has been very pointed about. The, the ad that's running right now with the ex-wife uh, is a little out of context. And when voters find out that it was out of context and that Walker is trying to bring awareness about mental health and football and whatever else it is that he's bringing awareness on, um, I think that changes voters' mindset on, on some of these issues. And, Bill, I'm sorry about my connection, but the bottom line for me that I think we're overlooking, that this is not really a race between Warnock and Walker. This is a race about who is going to control the U.S. Senate. And, many, you know, we focus on personalities because that's how we look at our political leaders. But in reality, I think voters, Republicans and Democrats, are looking at a much broader narrative as to who will ultimately control the U.S. Senate. Secondarily, it becomes a preference between Walker or Warnock, but all of that is being driven by Republican or Democratic control of the Senate uh, come January. Uh, But, Mike Thurman, do you think voters uh, look at it that way, um, or do they need to be led into looking at the race in terms of who controls the Senate? For instance, would the Warnock people want to be running ads that uh, say the future of choice is at stake uh, if you don't vote for Raphael Warnock. Um, It it strikes me that the campaigns are not leading voters to the conclusion that it's the uh, future of the Senate that's at stake here. Well, I guarantee you there are at least two men in Washington, (laughs) one named Schumer and the other named McConnell, who looks at it that way. And these are the men who determine how much money gets spent where. And I do believe that that is driving decision-making at the national level. Uh, when I ran for Senate against Johnny Eisen, got my pants beat off of me. That's when I learned a critical lesson. A U.S. Senate race is a national race. It's not a state race. And I went in there thinking I was running a state race, and I paid a big price for it. <laughs> Senate races are national races, not state races. Um. Kevin, I want to go back to Jordan's point about the uh, ads that Warnock's people and that the PACs have been running against Herschel Walker uh, for the episodes of violence against his ex-wife. Jordan's correct, and we've mentioned this on the show a number of times, that the sound bites with his ex-wife are taken from joint interviews that Walker and his ex-wife gave to media in talking about his mental health issues. Nevertheless, they are some of the most chilling campaign commercials I've ever seen in my, what, five-decade career covering politics. And yet, as Jordan points out, I'm not sure if people see them the way Jordan does as much as it's with Herschel Walker. He's a football star. Bill, I think you make a good point. And I, I was wondering, I think your career started before even television was invented and there were commercials, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, but, but, you know, our Patricia Murphy has really tracked the Herschel Walker campaign. And she, when, when she's on your show and when we get a chance to talk to her, she always mentions a couple of things, which including people who are aligned behind Herschel love him. 
and at events, it's it's like a love fest, right? And then others have been impressed with his rejoinder on the mental health stuff because he's, you know, he makes an argument that it needs to be destigmatized. We need to be more comfortable talking about it, and that that's what he's trying to do. Now, how will that work, and how will voters react to it? I mean, I think it's not complicated. If you like Herschel Walker, you like Herschel Walker, and those commercials don't affect you. You know, it's just a question of uh, back to what Michael said at the beginning of the show: who's going to get their voters out? And it seems like Herschel's motivating a lot of people. Um, yeah, nev- never is, underestimate go the, ahead, the power of uh, of the bulldog bulldog <laughs> nation over here. And uh, the the reality is is that if the if the Democrats are now arguing that this is of national significance. Um, and, and that this is about control of the Senate, they're basically forfeiting on having this about the candidates. And if that's the case, Herschel's definitely probably winning. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he, in the state of Georgia, he's known as a football hero, and you cannot change that overnight. Riley? Yeah, I think that I would jump in that uh, weighing the national importance of this race is having a different effect than it did in 2020, right? That was such a mobilizing effort by um, Democrats, like the Senate is on the line, right? But I think there's a lot of frustration with what things haven't been able to be accomplished um, through the Senate, despite having the slim majority. So I think that connotation has a different, you know, land with voters than it did two years ago. Uh, Mike Thurman? No, I agree with Riley and Jordan, but think about it. Neither candidate has broken 50%. So if this goes to a runoff, we may be back to where we were in 2020, i.e. control of the Senate. So it's not just (laughs) this November election, but you have to, looking at the polling uh, that I've seen, neither candidate has really broken, not consistently anyway, 50%. 50%. So you're really looking at a, a November election plus a runoff, and then we will know as to whether or not the impact of this race. But I agree with what you're saying, but you have to think maybe there's a second race coming uh, in this particular yeah, matchup. I, I, Michael, I'm really glad you pointed that out because I have not done as much as I should have with the fact that there is a libertarian, Chase Oliver, in this race. And Kevin Riley, uh, Mike Thurman is quite right. He has not. Neither of the candidates have gone over 50 percent. And I would think the last thing Republicans want to see is a reenactment of the uh, uh, runoff election that put two Democrats in the Senate for Georgia in 2021. Well, yeah, you know, Bill, I, I, I think that's the most interesting part of the race. Right. And we will have more polls coming out. And I think tracking whether the libertarian starts to lose a little ground and those people shift over to the other candidates will will absolutely be key because uh, in the end, um, if we have a runoff, um, I think the Democrats will be optimistic given the track history. But but you never know. You never know what will happen. Um, it, it is true, uh, Jordan, that the votes for libertarians do tend to fall off just a little bit as we get to an election day, right? Yeah, I mean, they just they have no advertising strength. Um, I mean, it's widely known locally that they 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 run to peel off votes uh, from Republicans. There are local parties who have aligned themselves with these these third party um, type candidates, and it's a dangerous place to be if you're you're a Republican. 
That being said, I, you know, anything can happen in these races. And one of the things that I'm sure the, the good fo- folks at the Secretary of State's office is anticipating is that there will be a lot of split ticket uh, voters out there here in the state of Georgia. We already saw it in 2020. Uh, we're anticipating it now. And so there, there's a likelihood that you could see a Warnock, Kemp, Raffensperger win. And if that occurs, it's going to be interesting to see what both parties do. And, you know, the Secretary of State's office is fully prepared to push back on voter suppression and then as well as voter fraud claims. Um, All right. Uh, Riley, we're getting a little short of time, but I want to turn for the final few minutes to a piece you uh, published at GPB and that people can see it on our website about the difference between in this state, women, Democratic women candidates and Republican women candidates. We know that the statewide ticket for uh, uh, Democrats is dominated by female candidates and on the Republican side. Uh, there is just simply no representation. And that's, as you point out in your piece, quite different from what's happening nationally. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Democratic and the Republican statewide tickets, they look very different. And I think a lot of that has to do with incumbents. But also there's a lot of other factors at play, too. Right nationally, Republicans have kind of started an effort to close that party gap in seeing um, women candidates run for higher office. But we're not seeing that in Georgia Um, And I think that that has a lot to do with setting women up to run for higher office in the legislature, you know, creating that pipeline. Um, And I I also spoke for the story with former um, U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler, who has been very um, open about the fact that the conservative movement in Georgia hasn't always um, paid focus and attention to women that it should. And I think that we're seeing that also in voter mobilization this year as well. So Democrats are really relying on women who make up, you know, 55% of the electorate coming out for them. And I think conservatives are really, they're playing catch up, but they're they're trying to make more of an effort this year. Um, we're almost out of time, but Jordan, very quickly, uh, it, there is a there is work to be done for Republicans uh, to uh, recruit women candidates in this state. Yes, I think I think we have uh, a, a number of candidates out there that could fill that role. Beth Beskin, who definitely does not want the shout out from me, but she she would be an excellent <laughs> statewide candidate. You have Deborah Silcox and Kay Kirkpatrick all of whom could easily step into that role. They're, they're smart, they're independent, they're successful. They, they make decisions through a community focus. So okay. I, I think that role could be fixed. Well, thank, we're out of time. It could be. So far, we haven't seen it. We'll see how that develops in the future. I'm completely out of time, and I wish I weren't. I want to really appreciate our uh, panel today, uh, Riley Bunch, Jordan Fuchs, Kevin Riley, Michael Thurman, thank you so much for uh, being with us for a terrific conversation. Uh, We'll be back, of course, with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, though, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.